If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. 53, as well as the end of 52, contains the prophecy of the suffering servant. And question before us, we'll say this again in a moment. After the suffering servant comes, after we hear of him, what then? What next? So... With that, let's look to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose, I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word together now. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our God. We earnestly seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we ask that you would give us now the bread, the food, the water that we need. Would you feed our souls by showing us both our sin and also our great Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Your biggest problem has been solved, but smaller problems remain. So what do you do? 
And what am I talking about? Well, God's people have heard, we have heard about the suffering servant by whose wounds they can be healed, but he would not come until they didn't even know when. It would be 700 years, but they, they needed him right now. And that's the rub, isn't it? That God's people are called to walk by faith, not by sight. Faith in God's promises, not faith in what they can see right in front of them, right? Because what did Israel see? When they looked at their life, they heard about the suffering servant. And then the next minute, what did they see around them? They probably saw barren existence. Spiritual life was at a low, except for a few people. A land around them was ravaged by war. The people were, were weary. They probably saw as well an unfaithful people, a land of unclean lips. They probably saw a land that was shaken, storm-tossed is the word that's used here. And I ask you this morning, can you identify with any of that? Is hope in God just flowing through the streets, pouring out your pores? Are your friends thriving or are they weary with life? Is God's kingdom more visible to you now than it was, say, five years ago? Are you and others more stable, more reassured of all that's going on? Or are you more shaken than you were five or ten years ago? Some of you might say, yeah, I feel great. I feel great. I, I see signs of hope all around. If so, that's great. But there are probably some that might say, yeah, there are things that bother me, that scare me, that make me nervous. And so you might say, does that mean that the servant's work is worthless? No, of course not. But you might understand why that thought occurs. I'd say it's because of this. Because we want heaven on earth and we want it now. That's not what God says, is it? He says you will have heaven, but not, not just now. You get salvation now, heaven later. You get the assurance of heaven now, and you get the actuality of heaven later. And because the servant has suffered and, and atoned for our sins and rose again, because of all that, we are assured of victory. That victory sustains us on earth until we see the new heavens and new earth. And in the meantime, the barren, broken, sometimes blameworthy people of God, we can have joy and peace and security right now because of the servant's atoning work, because of his continuing renewal. But what do you do when you look around and you see all the other problems that remain, the things that God is still making new? What do you do? You rest in God's promises. Three promises, three points this morning. The first one is this, the joy of peace for the barren. The joy of peace for the barren. You see it in verses 1 through 6. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Why is the barren one called to sing? Because it says she will have more children than the one who is married, the one who would be expected to have children. Children are a blessing. That was true then. It's true now. Now, yes, they might also require time, money, sacrifice. They are a blessing. It's why we say every week, if you have young children, they're not going to make too much noise for us. But if they make too much noise for you, wiggle rooms and all that stuff, they are a blessing. 
And that is why barrenness, infertility, inability to have children was seen as a, as, as a negative, especially back then. It was an unfortunate thing to say the least. Some would say it was so strong as to be seen as, as a curse, whether that's what God intended or whether it was simply the absence of a blessing. We'll leave that for another day, but I would simply say this. We should not see it as a sign of God's disfavor today. We don't know why God might choose not to give children, especially to those who want to have children, but sometimes he doesn't. That should help us to be, encourage us to be careful, sensitive when we ask questions, well-intentioned questions about the size of someone's family. But speaking of which, this, this desolate one is going to have a, a big family, more children than her who is married. How is that possible? Most authors say that somehow the people of God are going to be blessed by supernatural birth. Is that crazy? Well, it was true of Isaac, Abraham's long-awaited son of promise. Sarah was a first-time mother at the age of 99, amazingly. It was true of Samson, the deliverer of Israel, albeit a flawed one. It was true of, of Samuel, Hannah's son, Samuel, the last of the, ju the judges. And it was true, of course, of Mary with her first child. The hopes of God's people have often rested on miracle babies. And the ultimate hope of God's people rests on an even more miraculous birth. God brings hope out of barren places. That's what we see. He did it for Abraham and Sarah through Isaac, and he would do it again. And out of that would come spiritual descendants, people who called upon Israel's God Descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore, as the stars of the sky. Their tent would be enlarged, verses 2 and 3 says. It would be like the glory days in the wilderness. Wait a minute. Glory days? Wilderness? Yes, you heard that right. Because for all of Israel's missteps in the wilderness, it was a place of refuge, a place of retreat, a place where God kept them from other distractions, from idols, and they were free to worship him. And he also tabernacled among them. He camped out in his tent with his people. And God draws on all those familiar images to say here, it will be like this, only better. The camp will grow, but the intimacy won't die. The shame of your youth, which is probably code for Egypt, the place of Israel's birth, that will go away. The widowhood that's coming in Babylon, he's talked about that elsewhere in Isaiah, that is going to be gone too. You might say that life felt barren for Israel. God says it'll be better. John Piper's discussed this passage before, as well as Isaiah 56, under the heading, A Name Better Than Sons and Daughters. You'll see that in Isaiah 56. But he extolled the joys of seeing spiritual sons and daughters be born within the church, within the people of God, and he particularly applied it to those who are single, especially those who remain single longer than they want to be. But the point is the same. Out of barrenness, out of emptiness, God can bring hope. God can bring joy. He's done it before. He promises to do it again. Sing, O barren one, it says. Do you need to hear that this morning? whether you have 12 kids or two or none, does your life feel barren, empty? Does your heart feel empty?
So I have a confession for you. Almost two years ago, I preached the book of Ruth. I was simply looking for an Old Testament series after a long series in the book of Luke. And Ruth gave me more than I bargained for. Read, I preached, I realized I am not Boaz, the strong, noble savior of the weak, the one that all of us male characters want to identify as we read it. No, Jesus is Boaz, the better Boaz. No, I am not mighty Boaz. I'm not even faithful Ruth. No, I'm, I'm Naomi. I'm bitter. I'm empty. I'm pessimistic. If my cup is empty, I'm afraid it'll always be empty. If my cup is full, I'm afraid it'll run dry. But God did not leave Naomi empty. And he won't leave me or you empty either. Surely his goodness and mercy shall follow, even pursue me all the days of my life. The king of love, my shepherd is, so so I shall have no lack, no want, no shortage of all the good things that I need for life and godliness. God promises the joy of peace for the barren. And he promises the same thing to those who are still barren today. Next, we see this. Secondly, the covenant of peace for the unfaithful. The covenant of peace for the unfaithful. Verses 4 through 10, a hint of it in verse 13 as well. God's barren, empty people, they were not merely victims of circumstance. No, they were the cause of the circumstances, weren't they? They were unfaithful to their God, and the negative circumstances were, were discipline. They were God's warning. They were God's invitation Discipline or the promised consequences that God laid out for his people if they went astray in Deuteronomy and elsewhere. They were warnings. It was a call to return to the Lord. Isaiah 9.13, one example. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. It's also God's invitation. Isaiah 30, verse 15, verse 18. In returning and rest, you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits or he longs to be gracious to you. He exalts himself. He rises to show you compassion, mercy. You see a major theme of the prophets, especially Isaiah, is that Israel was unfaithful to their God. They were unfaithful to their God. And yes, there were all the hints of marital infidelity and unfaithfulness there. God had every right to divorce Israel, and yet God never did. God remained faithful even when she was unfaithful. Another way to say this, after the suffering servant atoned for our sins, took away our guilt, all of our unfaithfulness was not instantly healed. In fact, it won't be fully healed until heaven. And that's why Paul could say, even after his conversion, even after his eyes had been opened and he had come to see God's salvation, he said in Romans, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It culminates with him saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's why we sometimes sing on Sunday mornings, let your goodness like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Our biggest problem has been solved. The 
servant suffered for our sins. He removed our guilt. He's restored us to relationship with God. But this cancer of sin and unfaithfulness remains in part. You might say the grounds for divine divorce remain. And it's at that moment that God speaks his promise to us while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies with God at just the right time. He sent his son at just the right time. He says to us, verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Mixed metaphors, Isaiah seems to love them. There will be no more shame from their youth in Egypt, no more reproach from their future widowhood in Babylon. One day this will be true. No, Israel, the barren, seemingly forgotten girl at the dance, she will have a husband. It'll be the Holy One of Israel who will redeem her despite her unholiness, despite her unfaithfulness. She had no reason to expect such a lover, defender, redeemer, and friend. And that is exactly why God's covenant faithfulness mentioned in verse 10 and elsewhere is such good news. Look with me first at verse 6. The Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth. When she is cast off, says your God. Confusing language here, J.A. Morte Moitier, it's a hard name. He explains that, his, that the wife here is, is alone or her situation is admittedly sad, but it is not the husband who is to blame here based on the language. Who do you see in that picture? This is Israel. And actually, this is all of us outside of the grace of Christ. We're separated, alienated, strangers, without hope, without God, as Ephesians 2.12 says. But God calls her, he calls us like a, like, quote, a wife of youth with similar devotion to that of young lovers for each other. He's that devoted, that strong is his love. Some see here allusions to Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, where God pledged himself to Israel as her Husband, that illusion might be hard to see, but the following verses are clear. Clear in showing us the intensity of his love for his unfaithful people. Verses 7 and 8 say, for a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God's love did not expire after her unfaithfulness. No, like Hosea, he loved his bride when she was unworthy because his love, it says here, is everlasting because it's covenant love. Look with me, verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. With Noah, God promised he wouldn't destroy the earth so that he can continue his plan to rescue his people through the seed of a woman who was to come. And here God says he will not 
destroy his people. No, he has reason to, he has grounds to, but no, he will not. He will call them, he will pursue them, he will pledge his faithfulness to them. Verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but by steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Mountains might depart as in a flood, some other earth-shaking event, but God's love will not depart because it's steadfast love. The Hebrew word, you might have heard of it, it's hesed, loyal love, covenant love, the love that will not let you go. The covenant of love that, the covenant love, excuse me, that brings peace for God's people, even as all around their soul gives way even though they remain unfaithful. You might wonder this morning, why is he talking so much about unfaithfulness, about how God's people are unfaithful, but how we, by extension, are unfaithful? Why is he doing that? Is it because I want you to sin to let grace increase? By no means. Do I want you to walk right up to the edge of sin or past it so that you can somehow make your story of salvation that much more amazing? No. It's not it. In fact, if you're tempted to do that, want to do that, then you may not realize that God has saved you in part so that you don't have to taste the bitterness of sin, the bitter consequences of sin. There are blessings for obedience. You can see that throughout the scriptures, but we need God's grace to grab hold of them, to obey. We need God's grace to not lead us into temptation. I'm not stressing unfaithfulness because I want you to test the limits of his grace. The simple truth is we don't need any help to rebel. The book of Romans says we invent ways of doing evil. Why do I stress it so much? Because when you fail, and sadly you will, I will, small ways or big ways, we will. When you fail, I pray that you will keep coming back to your faithful God. Keep coming back to plead for his forgiveness, which he is willing and longs to give because he will always keep pursuing you like the prodigal father. He will run to you. If Israel wasn't a lost cause, then we aren't either, my friends. We can always run to Jesus, one song says, because our God promises a covenant of peace for the unfaithful. He doesn't promise it to good people. He promises it to the unfaithful. And after that, we also see this morning, thirdly, the security of peace, the security of peace for the shaken. <clears throat> Excuse me, verses 11 through 17. What have we learned? Israel was barren. She was empty, but it was her fault. She was also unfaithful, it says. God still pledges his loyalty to her, even though she doesn't deserve it. He promises his people joy and not sorrow. And Israel's other small problem was that she was shaken. Look with me at the beginning of verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. That's where she found herself, afflicted by, God's, by, by God and by God's tools of discipline, storm-tossed by life, by foreign invaders, amongst other things, not comforted. Why? Well, they were turning to the wrong places for comfort is one reason. 
And all of this, you could say they were storm-tossed or shaken, I prefer. Shaken, it's shorter. It also reinforces some of the verbal links between this passage and Psalm 46, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be shaken. But at this moment, she felt shaken. And how about us? Any of us feel shaken this morning? Maybe not. Maybe you're good to go. I'll mention something I've said before. It'll make sense in a second. Almost everyone is overreacting to something right now. Almost no one thinks it's their fault. Everyone, no exception, could do a better job reacting to the overreactions around them. Is that still true? There's a time where I thought maybe we're getting past some of that. Maybe life is not quite as crazy as it was. I do think the middle statement is less true. Almost no one thinks it's their fault. Some people, praise the Lord, realize that we are part of the problem, that our equal and opposite overreactions are not helping things to calm down in our world, in our community. We're realizing that we can seek God's comfort no matter what's going on around us, that we can seek God's peace that passes all understanding. Some are realizing that calm, like anxiety, is contagious. I'll say that again. It's not my phrase. It's someone else's calm, like anxiety, is contagious. Is it true what I said earlier that everyone's overreacting? Less so. And I think what most of us are probably feeling right now is just weary, just tired. All shook up, but not the way Elvis meant, not because we're in love. Maybe we're tired because COVID is still in the news. Someone said that to me earlier this week. Maybe you're tired for other reasons. Maybe you're tired because life still hasn't bounced back to what you think is fully normal. And maybe you're just tired of overanalyzing what is different, why it's different, and what to do about it. A year ago, I had a pastor friend say to me, we have all been through trauma. He meant more than just pastors, by the way, all of us. Surely some, by the way, have been through greater trauma. I don't want to belittle that by any means. But assuming that I'm reasonably right and that we're reasonably shaken and weary of the events of whatever, isn't it good news? Isn't it great that Isaiah prophesied to a storm-tossed, shaken audience? Isn't it good that we have a word for God's people that hasn't expired after 2,700 years, that we can still feel secure in God's peace. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. If you're familiar with Revelation 21, you might be guessing, did John draw from this when he wrote that? Streets of gold and walls made of precious stones, probably. And even if you can't tell a sapphire from a ruby, if you can't tell a pinnacle from a pearl, you, you get the idea here, don't you? God is saying your walls, your gates, they will be built by me. You will be secure. And what is he building with? What material is he using? This isn't you know, pine or some other kind of lumber. No, he is using precious stones. It's not just that we're secure. He is saying that you, your defenses are beautiful. 
that you are exquisite in my eyes, my people, as he said a few chapters ago. And not only exquisite, but also educated. One day you'll be educated. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. See, if we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and the, the clarity, the perspicuity, as it's called, of Scripture, then by extension, we also believe that the Bible is the answer to society's problems and ours. Oh, I'm not saying the Bible can teach you physics or civics, but the Bible gives you the foundational truth from which other truths arise and by which other theories can be tested. And you may not be an expert in theology. You may not have whole books of the Bible memorized. I don't either, side note. But you know enough, Lord willing, to explain the basics to your neighbor humbly, prayerfully. What does it say here? That God's people are, they will be exquisite in God's eyes. They will be educated and will also be established. will be secure. I think you see that all throughout this section, but especially in verses 14 and following. You'll be established in righteousness, he says in verse 14. Far from terror and fear. That wasn't the reality, but that must have been a good promise to them. And as he once said to Abraham, those who curse you, I, God, will curse. He'll stir up strife with them if they stir up strife with you, verse 15. And then verses 16 and 17. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Alec Moitier says of this, these verses, the Lord whose absolute sovereignty covers the manufacturer, the product, the intent of the user, he pledges that neither weapon nor accusation can succeed against his people. In other words, God's people will be secure against accusations and attacks. God's people will be secure in their knowledge of him, secure in their relationship with him, knowing that he sees them as precious and exquisite despite our unfaithfulness. Storm-tossed, shaken, his people may be, but their security, their peace is a strong and mighty tower. A mighty fortress is our God, and not just on Reformation Day or the day before, but always. One more thing I want to say as we close. Past two to three years, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, have brought... Many of our problems, many of our worries, insecurities, anxieties, and fears to the surface. We're, we're all shook up. And our, our pastors, our elders, our deacons have seen this. It's, it's not unique to our church. Maybe you're not aware of it at all. But in 2020, a pastor both predicted it. He said that angry people are going to leave our churches. He also said that those broken whom the Lord calls will eventually know where to find grace. Is these problems bubble up as we see God's grace healing them to, to the extent that that is what we're seeing. We need to say, praise the Lord. Uh, it may be messy at times for me, for you, for others, but we need to praise him all the same. 
praise him because others are finding the same refuge and healing that we know and love. Praise him because our Savior promises us security no matter how badly our lives have been shaken, no matter what's going on around us. And realize this. Do you realize that that is what we say we want when we say things like, I'm longing for community. You may not realize this, but both in our church, newer members, older members, people in plenty of other churches, according to pastors I talk to, lots of people are saying this. I'm just longing for community. Do you realize what community looks like? It looks like us being honest, all of us, about our messes, about our sins, as we try to bear one another's burdens. Or do we use that word community as some kind of Christian synonym for utopia? Not realizing that utopia literally means no place because there are no utopias on this side of heaven. But in both situations, small groups, our whole congregation, what is it that we should want? What should we want when broken people are finding grace in our local outpost of the kingdom of God? Oh, we should want God to keep on bringing it, to bring it, to pour it on, to keep pouring grace upon grace on top of our heads so that in our weakness, in our I am not sufficient for this, that God's strength can be made perfect. When we see God healing the broken, be it us, be it someone else around us, we should rejoice. You know, maybe it'll make small group awkward. And maybe God's glory will shine forth. And maybe both. You see, we're beggars. Simply telling the other beggars where to find bread, where to find grace. And we should not fear that they will eat up all the bread and leave us none. We should not fear that they will use up all of God's grace and then leave us empty. Because what does God promise his people? He promises the joy of peace for the barren and the empty. He promises the covenant of peace for the unfaithful like us. And he promises the security of peace now and evermore for those who are shaken, storm-tossed, weary, tired. There is more grace in Christ then there is need in us. And if you don't believe me, try him and see. Because the God who brings joy and beauty out of barrenness, he loves a challenge. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be our help, be our strength, be our sufficiency, be all that we need right now. God be with us. Maybe we feel drained and tired because of our own circumstances. Maybe we feel drained and tired because the needs of those around us, those we love. Maybe we don't feel like we have any need at all. If that's the case, then let the one who thinks he stands take heed, watch out, lest he fall. Help us to know we need your grace for our own sake, for those around us. Help us know that the foot, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And help us to fall upon your mercy. Now, tomorrow, and the next day. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.